So today's reading is going to be from Zephaniah 2, verses 4, to Zephaniah 3, verses 13. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will, I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites for who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride, because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth, when all the distant coasts and islands of nations will bow and worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my word. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it, every kind of wild animal. Both eagles, eagle owls and herons will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold, for he will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed, she has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted the Lord, she has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her, he does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. 
I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste to their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger for the world, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him. From beyond the river, made dispersed people will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Until by the reading, we are in our second week in the book of Zephaniah. We'll be in Zephaniah for one more week. Uh, and then after Labor Day, we're having uh, what we call kickoff Sunday, Sunday, September 10th. We're going to say a little bit more about that at the end of our gathering this morning. But on Sunday, September 10th, we're going to have what we call kickoff Sunday. We encourage you to wear your favorite team's jersey and uh, or, or gear or whatever you have. Um, and we're going to forgive those who aren't Saints fans. Uh, but, but, but you can come and support your team. And uh, we are also afterwards, I know some people have traditions for uh, during football season, so there's no pressure if you already have friends or family coming over to your house. But if you don't have a place to watch the game, we're going to have everybody come over to our house. That's two weeks from today. Uh, we're going to have people come over to our house. We're going to uh, hear that Elijah may be grilling some burgers. And, uh, and so we're going to provide the food and the drinks. All we ask is that you bring a really good side, you know, some cheese dip or something on the side, something crazy. You know, that's all we ask if you can do that. Um, so that's two weeks from today. We're going to be kicking off in the fall. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. So I would encourage you to read the book of Genesis. Then we're going to jump to the life of Joseph this fall. These three weeks that we're in Zephaniah, we're really exploring this theme, how God turns our shame into praise, how he turns our shame into praise. And if you weren't here last week, uh, let me recap a little bit of where we were. We talked about how complacency breeds sinful practice. The, the sin that Israel had was that they were complacent. They were just kind of letting things come as they come. They weren't investing in their relationship with the Lord and their complacency caused sin to enter their camp. They, uh, they weren't holding fast to, to the word of God. They weren't teaching it to their children. 
binding it to their foreheads, all these things that they were taught in Scripture they weren't doing. And so complacency came, and with that came sin. And the sin was syncretism. It meant that they took different practices of different religions and gods and mixed it with their own. And then what we also see is that the prophet Zephaniah doesn't leave them without hope. He, he really calls Israel to worship. And he says, and where we landed last week was worship is our hope. The opposite of complacency is pursuing God. It's worshiping God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so where we're at this week, Zephaniah is continuing to prophesy, and he's prophesying against the foreign nations, and then he switches it midway. He switches it back to Jerusalem. He says, woe to that city. And so that city, they're thinking, oh, he's talking about Nineveh. But then they learn that, no, he's talking about us. And so today we're going to explore the idea of conversion. Uh, because we all, we're all in need of, of converting and following Jesus. The big idea is this, God causes conversion. God causes conversion. And what we see is Zephaniah is a prophet that he, he's from Judah. Israel at this time in its history is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jeroboam and Rehoboam are the leaders of each. And we see that this, this is, uh, is now taking place in the time of a king named Josiah. If you read in chapter one, Zephaniah's lineage, uh, it, his lineage traces all the way back to Hezekiah, who was a good king. And it, it shows that since four generations back, he was related to Hezekiah. Uh, Josiah comes from the lineage of Hezekiah as well. So Zephaniah is likely in some way related to the king of, of Judah, uh, Josiah at this point. If you didn't know anything about Josiah, he became king when he was eight years old. He was a, he was a young, young lad. And then 31 years he reigned, and then uh, he died. He perished on the battlefield. And what you'll see throughout Scripture when you're studying the Old Testament is God usually raises up a leader and they either follow the Lord or they don't follow the Lord. And this is why generational ministry is so important, because the word uh, Josiah, literally through Helkiah, the high priest, they discovered the word of the law, which was most commentators believe was a book of Deuteronomy that they discovered in the temple. It meant that Israel had been without reading God's word for nearly a century. And uh, it's crazy that if we don't pass along God's truth, to the next generation, they're not going to have it to pass on to the next. That's why we say our kids' ministry and our youth ministry, they're not the next generation, they're the generation. We invest in them now. And if God can raise up a godly king like Josiah at eight years old, he can raise up, Elijah, some of our teenagers, to do what his work. Y'all know the disciples, as a side note, you know that Peter is the only one who paid the temple tax with Jesus. So a lot of people believe that the disciples were likely very young because uh, young men didn't pay the temple tax. So it was a good chance that a lot of the majority of Jesus' disciples were teenagers or older teenagers. And so we have a group of generational young people that God is raising up here and now to cause, cause this to happen, that the Spirit would lead people to convert and follow 
Jesus? How will they hear if we don't tell them? So what we're going to look at in verses chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 through chapter 3, verse 8, I'm going to read along again and kind of give some explanation to some of this. I know that Zephaniah or some of these Old Testament books are not easy to read. Uh, they sound very depressing because there's a lot of judgment going on. But hopefully today, we want you to see, just like we talked about last week, that God's word from Genesis to Exodus is worth our, not Genesis to Revelation, is worth our investment, all of it. We don't just jump to the books that are easy to understand and the books that make us feel good. We go to all of God's word because it's all living and breathing and active. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's read in chapter two, verse four. What Zephaniah does here is he opens up and he attacks the four, four of the five main cities of the Philistines. If you don't know who the Philistines were, they were the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that, that God had promised to the people of Israel. Now, early on, Israel had some serious conflicts with the Philistines. Y'all remember Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine giant that they fought against. There was a lot of conflict at this point in history. The Philistines and Israelites were, were they're kind of getting along. Um, but to Israel's disadvantage, even though there was peace, Israel compromised on the truth and often took on for itself pagan gods. We know that even the other, uh, on the other end, you're going to have the Ammonites and Moabites on the other side of the Jordan River, and we're going to get to them in a minute. But we know that the main gods were Kamosh and Molech for those two groups. Molech, uh, actually the chief way to worship Molech was to offer child sacrifice uh, so that you could appease the gods and get your way. Uh, they often offered their own children on the altar and killed them as a sacrifice to Molech. And get this, Solomon, right, the wisest man that ever lived, the king who built the temple, the first temple, Solomon had actually even built uh, altars to these pagan gods. We saw that, and you go all the way back to the story of the Exodus, right? You know, and what, what happened? Like, they, Moses comes down from the mountain and they've created idols, you know? And what does he do? He grinds up the idols and makes them drink it, you know? Like, that's, because that's what it's, idols are worthless. But God's people always go back to what makes us feel good rather than what God requires of us. And so what we see here is that the Philistines and the Israelites were buddy-bud at this time, but the fact that they were buddy-bud meant that they were syncretizing their religions and their practices with one another. And this is why now in the first chapter, Zephaniah is calling out Israel. Now he's going to Israel's enemies. He's saying, for Gaza will be abandoned and Eshkelon will become a ruin and Eshad will be driven out at noon, meaning they'll fall quickly or they'll fall unexpectedly because noon was the time that they rested during the day and Ekron will be uprooted. These are four of the five uh, main Philistine cities and Gath at this point in history had already been destroyed. So what, what, what the word's saying here is these words, these, these cities are about to lie in ruin. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar led an army and destroyed these cities. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast. 
the nation of Cheritites. Cheritites was a tribe of the Philistines. It also referred to the Philistines' origins, which was likely the island of Cyprus. The word of the Lord is against you. Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until there is no one left. This is what God does to his enemies. That's really our, our point that undergirds our big idea that God causes conversion is this. God's enemies are punished. God's enemies are punished. This is why conversion is so important, because the truth is God's enemies are punished. And we're going to continue to read, and we're going to see how God's enemies continue to be punished. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. It's saying that uh, the Cheritites, they inhabit the, 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 the seacoast. Uh, but no, the seacoast is going to be in ruins, and instead it's going to be inhabited by sheep who are going to have a shepherd. This is some hope even in the midst of the despair. The seacoast during that time was highly prized by, by shepherds because there were caves to hide. Uh, there were also uh, uh, significant lands for grazing. And here, even in the midst of judgment, God's promising that he is the good shepherd is going to care for his sheep. That's why David wrote, right, in, in Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? God is a shepherd. He cares for a sheep. And do you know this? Sheep only eat when they feel safe. The sheep are dumb. We're all sheep. It means we're dumb. Like, let's be honest. Like, sheep are dumb. They've got to have a shepherd to guide them. That's why a shepherd has a rod and a staff. You know, the rod beats away the enemies, the staff, uh, brings the sheep back into the fold. So they, you know, a sheep will just go off the edge of a cliff if you don't guide it to safe passage. And so what we see here is that in verse eight, God turns his attentions from the Philistines to the other side of the Jordan River. And he says, I've heard the taunting of Moab and the insult of the Ammonites who've taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God's presented as a warrior. God is, yes, God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath, a God of justice, and a God of power. Moab will be like Sodom and the Amorites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them, the remainder of my nation will dispose them. This is what they get for their pride because they've taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all of their false gods on the earth of the earth. Then the distant coasts and inlands of the nations will bow to worship him each in his own place. I've said this before. We will either choose to bow or we will be forced to bow. That's not universalism. Not everybody gets eternity with Jesus, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And, 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 and either we will be told, well done, good and faithful servant, or we'll be told, depart from me, I never knew you. Will you be a sheep that will be guided by a shepherd or will you be a goat who does it your own way and, and ultimately to your own destruction? What we see here is that 
is that Moab and the Amorites, Ammonites are, are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it didn't end well for those two cities. They were destroyed because of their sin. And if you didn't know, these two people groups descended from Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Lot, his wife had died, his son had died. And so his, uh, his daughters actually, uh, as, as, as he's drunk, his daughters, if y'all think, think soap operas or, or, or read the Old Testament, right? And we're going to get to that a little bit in Joseph's story. We're not going to skip over any of the hard parts. Some of it may be PG-13. We're going to try to do our best. But that's because that's the Bible. The Bible shows us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we see that, that actually Lot's own daughters uh, have him, him drunk and they, and they have sex with him. And uh, they had sexual relations with their own father. And the children that were born to them become the descendants of Moab and Ammon. Ammonites and Moabites are descended from evil sexual relations and sin. This is why God commands us to do it his way. God destroys these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's now comparing these descendants of those who escaped this wrath He's saying that, you know what, Sin's, sin, the punishment for sin ends up catching up with you. A few generations later, you might think you're fine, but if you continue and persist in sin, it will catch up for you. This is why God's enemies are always punished. You know, if you go to the Holy Land today, I've not been. Has anybody been over to Israel? Nobody? Uh, Simona's been over to Israel? Here's the thing, if you go in this area where Sodom and Gomorrah historically were uh, on the southern coast of the Dead Sea, it's a desolate, dry place, even to this day. It's really worthless. It's worthless land. And that's what sin is. Sin is worthless and unuseful. Even though we think it gives us pleasure in the moment, it ultimately doesn't help us persist. Verse 12, you Cushites will also be slain by my sword. The Cush, the kingdom of Cush had conquered uh, Egypt. Uh, they were, it's kind of modern day Sudan and Ethiopia uh, was where the kingdom of Cush was. And so at this point, Cush represents the uttermost parts of the world. And so what the, the prophet is saying here is that God's power will go forth even to the furthest of places. He will stretch out his hand. Hand means power in, uh, in prophetic literature. His hand against the north and destroy the, the Assyria. Assyria was the, was, the, was the powerhouse during this time. They had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. He will make Nineveh. Nineveh, uh, y'all remember Nineveh from the story of Jonah? They had repented, but 150 years later, Nahum tells us the same city that had repented had not passed it along to another generation because they persisted in sin and God destroyed Nineveh. He make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the deserts. Herds will lie down in the middle of it. Every wild animal, eagles and herons will roost in the capital of its pillars. Basically, y'all can picture just a dry wasteland. And the ruins of Nineveh have actually been found. They're across, the, they're across the river from, anybody ever heard of Mosul, Iraq? Mosul, Iraq, that was kind of when we were in the war, and even ISIS took Mosul at one point. 
the ruins for Nineveh are across the river from modern day Mosul, Iraq, and it's all gone. It's all gone. It's, it's dead and buried because that's, that's what the most powerful city on planet Earth becomes when it doesn't follow Jesus. Let's skip down, continuing to describe Nineveh. In verse 15, this is the jubilant city that lives in security. Nineveh was surrounded by water. They, they, had, they had everything. They were a very rich, wealthy city. Nobody knew poverty, but, he's, but when you're against God, you can have the world and forfeit your own soul. This is the jubilant city that lives in security and thinks to herself, I exist and there's no one else. There's no other city like Nineveh. That was their thought. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. And everyone who passes at her scoffs and shakes his fist. If Nineveh, this rich, fertile land, becomes a desolation, it, what, what it's doing here is the prophet is, is churning up imagery to show you the consequences of sin. Even the things that you think around you bring security will collapse in on you if you don't give those to God, and if you use those for your own pleasure. Now, verse 1 of chapter 3, now the story gets turned on God's people again. Because what Zephaniah did in chapter 2 was he talked about how God's going to destroy Israel's enemies from every side, from north, south, east, and west. If you look at every, Assyria was north. The Cushites were kind of southwest, south. We see the Philistines were to the west. The Ammonites and the Moabites were to the east. All of Israel's enemies were going to be conquered. Even as he lists out the Philistine cities, he lists them out in a way where it goes from the farthest city to the closest city, saying that judgment is coming upon his people if they don't purify themselves as well. God causes conversion. He uses every means that he, he can to bring you to him. He, something in life, here's, I don't want to just like give you a ton of knowledge and miss the point of why we're going to God's word today. You can have everything in life. And it brings you this false hope. And sometimes you lose it and, you, and we blame God when we lose it, right? We lose a person that we loved we lose a job, we lose things, and we blame God. God, why, why are you taking these things away? Sometimes God uses these things to bring us to him. To show, have y'all ever noticed, like, when I was a younger person and I learned my lesson, that I just always needed to be in God's word? It wasn't until something was going wrong that I went to God. I was in God's word when things were going wrong. Then God convicted me, like, you need to be in my word so that my word can get you through the times when they're rough. Like the Lord is our shepherd. He'll bring us through the valley of the shadow of death and he'll be with us. That's what, what, he, what he's told us and that's what he's commanded to his people. And so we see here in chapter three, woe to that city talking about Jerusalem that is rebellious and defiled, an oppressive city. And here's the sad thing about God's city, Jerusalem. And the enemy city, Nineveh, if you looked at both during this time, you probably couldn't tell the difference between one and the other. That's what the prophet's doing here. He's bringing the imagery of Nineveh to Jerusalem. Why? Verse 2, she's not obeyed. She's not accepted discipline. She's not trusted in the Lord. What are we called to do? Trust in the Lord. 
all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, right? He'll make our path straight. He will guide us. Yet too often we don't do this. We fear everything else but the terrifying God who brings judgment. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 10, 9, verse 10. It says in verse 3, the princes, think of princes as, as representatives or rulers. Maybe like for us, uh, mayor, um, president, uh, city council members. Your princes within her are roaring lions. Now, this isn't like God being a roaring lion. This is a lion looking to devour and to take advantage of, using people for their own gain and their own good rather than the good of those whom they serve. Her judges are wolves in the night, which leave nothing for the morning. He's using this imagery of wolves who are picking the people clean. They were using people, picking them of all. Do Hey, do we act like wolves towards other people at times? Do we use people for our own advantage and rather than the glory of God and the good of other people? We're, told, we're called to love God and love people. We, God doesn't stop at the love God part because we put it into practice by loving other people. And we love our neighbor, what, what we're commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. It means the security, the things that we long for. We bless our neighbors with the exact same. Her people are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her. So here's the hope. Even in the midst of all this sin, God hasn't given up on his people. The righteous Lord is in her, and he does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning, and he does not fail at dawn. We need to praise God for that, right? God does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. Shamelessness in sin is actually quite shameful. I have cut off the nations. Their corners and towers are destroyed. I've laid waste to their streets, no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I thought you will certainly fear me and accept correction. correction. Then our dwelling place would not be cut off. Let's learn uh, as God's people, hopefully we have an example by the destruction that is brought against God's enemies. We fear God so that we do what's right in the eyes of God, because the same God is the God of the whole earth. He says the whole earth is mine. He desires the whole earth to come to him. Actually, his covenant with Abraham said, through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God desires every person in Iraq to come and know him. He desires every person in Brazil to come and know him. He desires every person in Japan to come and know him. He desires everybody in the United States of America, Canada, everywhere, every nation, tribe, and tongue to bow and worship him as king. I thought you certainly will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Sometimes God blesses us and we forget to be thankful and we continue to use it for our pleasure and our good rather than giving back to him. This is what we're trying to teach our kids about tithing and generously giving to God. 
we ask them, uh, we, we actually, we sort of like push them towards giving when they get things, give something back to God. And they're like, it's so hard for me to get money. It's so hard for me to get money. How, what, what, you know, I'm never going to be able to save up enough money. I'm like, just go do something for your Nina. She'll pay you for anything, you know, like, but it's, we learn that we work hard and God blesses our hard work. We realize that God owns 100% of our time, talent, treasure, and he, only, he gives us 90, like, right? He tells you, you can have 90 and all we have to do is keep 10. All we have to do is give 10. He could demand everything. Actually, in the New Testament, not just talking about money, in the New Testament, more is required. That's when Jesus goes with the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, blah, blah, blah. I tell you, if you did this, you're guilty of that sin, right? You've heard that, you know, you're not supposed to kill. You're not supposed to get, you're like, I haven't killed anybody. You've thought evil thoughts. You've done just the same. God takes, Jesus takes everything to another level of trust. This is why we, we, we don't take the things that he's blessed us with and keep them as our own. We take the things he's blessed us with and we give them back to, the, to him. So here's the hope. God's enemies are punished, but God's people are preserved. And we're going to end with this. So God's enemies are punished, but God's people are preserved. He, he leads us to him. God causes conversion. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one could boast. But we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared for us to do. God causes us to bring, uh, to, to get ourselves to him. He requires faith of us. He does all the work and we get to get all of the good. We get to get all of the pleasure. He says, for then I will restore pure speech to the people's speech at this time represented idolatry. It still does to this day. How the overflow of the heart, the, the mouth speaks, right? How the overflow, who's, who's ever been working on, uh, I'm guilty. So like, I, I'm, I'm confessing as your pastor, who's ever worked outside and you hit yourself with the hammer and something came out. Y'all know what I'm saying. Let's confess, you know, how the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why I remember when I was playing high school football, it's hard to play sports, you know, competitive sports and not have something come out of your mouth. Because when you're stretched and when you're pushed is ultimately when who you are comes out. Let me say again, when you're stretched and when you're pushed, is when who you are comes out. Waylon Bailey, who's actually the pastor of First Baptist Covington on the North Shore, writes about this, commenting on this passage. Judgment is a strange work of God who desires to forgive and to restore. Hope has the last word. Sometimes God punishes us for what we do, but his punishment isn't to destroy. God's enemies are destroyed. God's people are purified. Y'all, I haven't done much iron work or things like that, but do you know to mold something, it's got to heat up, right? 
And oftentimes, to who, well, we know this, our, our water in our city goes bad all the time, right? You have a boil water advisory. Why are you boiling the water? To get the bad out and leaving what's good. Now, does it, does it, is it good to like drink hot water? No, it's not good. But the heat brings out the impurity. And that's what judgment does. That's what judgment against sin does. And that's why in Jesus, all the judgment against sin is removed from us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. I will then restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. Get that. It's not saying that God's people, that Israel should call upon the name of the Lord, but that all, even these pagan nations that are being the hope of, of, of Jesus is, is found in the purifying wrath of God against sin and serve him with a single purpose from beyond. Y'all remember we talked about Cush just a minute ago, about God's power going beyond to Cush? Now from beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. So now it's saying that even from the uttermost parts of the earth, even from pagan lands, they will come to me. And it says, and on that day, they will not be put to shame because of everything you've done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty in my holy mountain. We go to Revelation chapter 21. Death shall be no more. Lying shall be no more. All evil shall be gone. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in my name, the Israel, the remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will no longer be found, yet they will pasture and lie down and nothing will make them afraid. God's people are preserved. God's people are preserved. We are, God takes the punishment of sin away from us when we accept Jesus Christ as, as Lord, when he leaves a meek and humble people. This is why Jesus said, y'all remember the Beatitudes at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount? What does he say? Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. filled. To pasture and lie down means, what did I say? Sheep don't eat unless they feel safe and secure. So in order to pasture and lie down in the midst of judgment, it means that we have security in God as his people. And that's where we really land today, is have you found that security in Jesus? If you're not in Christ, God's blessings don't awake you to him. If you're not in Christ, God's judgment doesn't even awake you to him. But if you are in Christ, you know that blessings and judgment are both from him. And you can trust him in the middle of it all. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. 
says actually two verses later, you know, it'll bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's what trust does. I want to ask you today, if you know that God causes conversion, have you been converted? By conversion, I mean, have you left judgment and death and accepted refreshment and life? Don't let today pass without making that decision. Let's call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, as Romans 10, 13 says. But just as the scripture said, they will call upon my name. There's power in that name. Power in the name of Jesus. Jesus forms the family of God. And we'd love to invite you to join that family. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that the fire of your wrath doesn't burn us, Lord, but the fire of your wrath purifies us into the people that you've called us to be. So God, just as we look at these words in Zephaniah, Lord, our prayer for every person in this room is that they would move from shame to praise. Lord, next week, as we look towards what it looks like to pour out our praise to you in light of all that you've done, God, I pray that in order for us to get to that point, Lord, we would realize here in this moment that we are sinners and we are hopeless without you. This isn't just a message that we've had showered on us for our whole lives. It's a message that we've accepted. It's a message that we believe. It's a message that we invite everyone to follow. Our God loves and preserves his people. So God, we thank you so much for doing that. Today, we call upon your name, and we ask you that everyone in this room would be saved. Lord, there's someone here today who hasn't taken that step in life. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't let this moment pass until they do that very thing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.